Well, thank you so much, John and the band, for leading us in that song. I love that it was the, the voice of God really speaking over us and to us this morning. I don't know about you, but sometimes that helps to soften my heart, to know that I'm not just doing all the talking, but that he has something to say and I can listen to. And, you know, we really believe that worship is a dialogue, that we come together on Sunday not just to go through a routine, but to have a conversation with the, the God who made us. And so often we hear our own voices most. We sing and we talk to each other and we pray, but God is speaking to us, not just through that song this morning, but through scripture. We believe God is always actively speaking to us through scripture. So as we come to the text this morning, let us continue just to posture ourselves to listen. We've been in a series these last several weeks on the Sermon on the Mount, and this is our last week today in this series and we're actually going to be talking about the very last passage of the Sermon on the Mount, that last closing statement that Jesus makes to, to kind of wrap it all up. And what better place for us to start than to talk about a hermeneutical principle? For those of you who know me or have talked to me much about Scripture, you know that I'm a fan of hermeneutical principles. And if that is a term you do not know, let me just say it's a fancy way of talking about guidelines or ground rules to help us know that we are interpreting scripture faithfully. I like to keep them in mind in my own reading of scripture, and I like to throw them out every now and then as tools for your tool belt too, because you're also students of scripture, and I think they're helpful for us to talk about together. So I'm going to throw another one out there today. You guys ready? Okay, preference for the simplest, or sometimes people say clearest, interpretation. In other words, if there is a simple, clear, direct meaning or a convoluted, highly spiritualized meaning, we would prefer the simpler one. That one is probably correct. This is an important principle for us to keep in mind when talking about the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. If you remember back to the very first week, John talked about how often the commands in the Sermon on the Mount are over-spiritualized to kind of water them down and make them a little bit more palatable right? But in reality, in this sermon, even when what Jesus says is hard, it's incredibly practical. The simplest, clearest interpretation is best. He says what he means, and he means what he says. Often we get parables from Jesus, but this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of it is very clear and very direct. So this week, our passage, this final passage of the Sermon on the Mount, is no different. There's a very clear, direct interpretation. I read it the first time, and I went, hmm, well, that says something right there. Just reading it. And I actually think we can sum it up with a popular marketing catchphrase. So my recently retired dad was a marketing and advertising executive and professor his whole career. So this popped into my head in honor of him. And so we're going to flash up the logo, and you guys just tell me the tagline. Just do it. Yeah. All these things that Jesus has been saying in the Sermon on the Mount, just do them. <laughs> That's pretty much as simple as the first reading of this passage was for me this week. It's very clear, very direct. We're going to dive more into that today, but that's a good place to start. I want to read the passage for us and see if you hear the just do it as clearly as I did. This is Matthew 7, 24 through 29. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. 
The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The word of God for the people of God. Yes, so the wise man, with a good final outcome, hears and puts into practice. The foolish man, with a bad final outcome, hears and doesn't put into practice. Pretty clear, right? Just do it. Hear it and put it into practice. Well, I don't know about you, but this sort of directness is both refreshing and frustrating to me. I appreciate that Jesus wraps it all up with such a clear final imperative. But it's often a little bit frustrating to me when I walk away from a passage of scripture and I feel like there's a heavy impetus on me. Now, I have to summon up the energy to just do all the things, all the really challenging uh, transformative initiatives that Jesus has been offering up in this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, don't you know that this is a really costly calling? Don't you know that this is hard? Don't you know that I'm already tired? Does anybody else feel me there? Well, I have learned that when I am frustrated by a scripture or exhausted at the idea of a scripture, that that usually means I need to take a step back and look at the bigger picture and get to the heart of the matter. John's been talking through this whole sermon series about how Jesus radicalizes or gets to the root of the laws of the Old Testament. He gets in there and figures out what really matters. Well, this morning, we're going to get to the heart of the matter as well and figure out the purpose behind this final command from Jesus. Why are we called to hear and obey? What is the undertone underneath the just do it? What's the purpose there? Well, I believe the answer to that question is in today's passage and in a couple others that are connected to it throughout the witness of Scripture. And that is one of Matthew's main points for us today, by the way that Jesus' words are connected to the whole witness of Scripture. His words stand in the same tradition, and they fulfill it. Back towards the beginning of the sermon, Jesus said this about himself in Matthew 5:19. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, at the close of the sermon, Jesus' words don't sound quite like that. They don't seem as direct to us but he's actually reinforcing that same idea. He's communicating again his own fulfillment of the law. He admonishes the crowds not just to hear his words, but to obey them. And when he does that, he's borrowing language that shows up over and over again in the Old Testament, specifically to talk about the very words of God. In the Old Testament, when God gives commands, when Moses, as the mouthpiece of God, gives the commands, over and over again, it says, hear and obey. It's the weighty matters of the law that you must hear and obey. So I want to show us a few examples from the book of Deuteronomy. At the opening of the Ten Commandments, pretty big deal. We hear in Deuteronomy 5.1, Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them, and be sure to follow them. Then also in Deuteronomy 8.1, we hear a similar sentiment with a statement of reasoning attached to it. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today or that you're hearing today. 
so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your fathers. So hear and follow the commands so that you can have the good outcome that you desire and that God desires for you. Then later, towards the very end of the book of Deuteronomy, in 28.1, we read this. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands, all these blessings will come upon you. And then there's a list of really great favorable outcomes. After that list of blessings comes this statement. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees, I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you. And so follows a list of undesirable outcomes. Okay, so all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we hear this structure. And the structure of these phrases sounds a whole lot like the way Jesus has structured his closing statement, his wrap it up all together statement of the Sermon on the Mount. Hear my words and put them into practice. If you do, there's a good outcome, like the wise builder whose house stands. If you hear them and you don't put them into practice, there's a bad outcome, like the foolish builder whose house falls. That structure is very intentional. And it would have really jumped out to Jesus' Jewish listeners and to Matthew's Jewish readers. The audience would be quite clear about the fact that Jesus is equating his words with the words of the law, with the weight of the law. What he is suggesting is that they carry the same authority, that's a big deal, that they carry the same weight, and that just like the words of the law could bless or curse, depending on how they took form in your life, Jesus' words can also bring life or death, blessing or curse, depending on what we do with them. Now, no other Jewish rabbi would have ever <laughs> said something like this. That's why we get the closing phrases that we do, where it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, that authority of the law, and not as their teachers of the law. So just by the way that he structures this closing statement in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a statement about who he is, and people are hearing it. They're not missing it. They feel the authority when he's speaking this way. In the words of Jesus, the words and commands of God have been distilled, radicalized, and clarified. It's almost as if God is saying to his people, Following the law hasn't been working so well for you, has it? Follow Jesus. Hear his words and build your life on his words the way that you see him build his life. You see, I think what's really powerful here that I don't want us to miss is that what God has wanted from his people the whole time is exactly the same as what he still wants when Jesus is speaking. He wants his people not just to hear his words, but to build their lives upon them. What he wants for his people, he's wanted it the whole time, and he still wants it, is exactly the same. He wants to bless his people, and he wants them to live full, abundant lives. That's a beautiful thing that God wants for his people. And in today's passage, Jesus is talking about building houses, to somehow communicate that to us. But in light of his words, we're meant to understand our act of construction as the building of our lives. We are meant to construct our lives on a lasting foundation. And that foundation he calls a rock. 
So just like he's already patterned his words to sound like the law, he calls himself a rock, and that also is Old Testament language. Over and over throughout the Old Testament, in the Psalms, in the prophets, in multiple places, God is called a rock, or even the rock of Israel. So this is recognizable language. Jesus is making a big statement here. His words carry the weight of the law. He himself is the rock that Israel needs to build their life upon. So what he's calling us to in this passage is a continual listening to and building our lives upon what he himself has said. That life then will be full and sturdy and lasting. Friends, the natural outcome of a life built on Jesus is the very abundant life Jesus promises. They go hand in hand. So though the words of the Sermon on the Mount are challenging, and though what we are called to is difficult, Jesus wants us to know that this way, this path, leads to life. When you take his words into your ears, and they make a home in your body, and you use that body to construct a life built on and shaped by his words, then you are able to withstand the storms that come. We've heard a lot of storm imagery and metaphors, haven't we? They show up in songs and poems and other forms of art. Maybe even in your conversations, your reflective conversations, you talk about your trials as a storm, right? That is familiar language to us. And we all have different storms at different seasons. Maybe your storm is chronic illness. Maybe it's divorce. Maybe it's financial insecurity or infertility. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe your own or a family member's. Maybe you're feeling incredibly abandoned and lonely. Surely, a life built on Jesus is meant to withstand all of those storms. But more above and beyond that, today, scholars want us to know that this particular passage, these particular storms, are actually referencing an end final judgment kind of image. And we'll see that that shows up in scripture too. But really the question of this passage where the whole sermon has been building is in the end, will the life we have built stand before God or will it fall apart? Does that feel like a weighty question to anyone else? Feels like a big thing that we're dealing with today. Will the final test of our lives reveal that we have built them on a solid foundation or that we've built on an inferior foundation with inferior supplies? That's the question this passage asks us today. And the idea of storms depicting judgment is not new. It shows up in other places throughout scripture. But there's one especially helpful passage in the Old Testament that actually talks about storms taking down a poorly constructed wall. So it's a very similar image here to what we have in our passage. So let's hear Ezekiel 13, 8 through 14 now. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because of your false words and lying visions, I am against you, declares the sovereign Lord. Because they lead my people astray, saying, peace, when there is no peace. And because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those who cover it with whitewash that it is going to fall. Rain will come in torrents, and I will send hailstones hurtling down, and violent winds will burst forth. When the wall collapses, will people not ask you, where is the whitewash you covered it with? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In my wrath, I will unleash a violent wind, 
And in my anger, hailstones and torrents of rain will fall with destructive fury. I will tear down the wall you have covered with whitewash and will level it to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you will be destroyed in it, and you will know that I am the Lord. Who needs a breather after that one? That's some pretty strong language, right? The air of judgment is really clear in this passage. We've even got the word wrath in there, which makes plenty of us uncomfortable. But that wrath and that judgment in this passage, did you notice where it's directed? At false prophets with a particular kind of message. What these storms are doing, this judgment in this passage, God is holding accountable prophets who are proclaiming that there is peace or that beautiful Hebrew word shalom when there is not. He likens their prophecies to a flimsy wall that has been whitewashed or cleaned up and covered up to hide what it really is. So when the storms of God's judgment come, the true nature of the wall is revealed. It is leveled to the ground, and the foundation is laid bare so that people can see it was not going to stand in the first place. In both passages, this Ezekiel one and the teaching at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's a problem with the foundation, and therefore the construction leads to destruction. In the Ezekiel passage, the foundation upon which this flimsy wall has been built is the lie that shalom is present when it is not. Let's just take a moment to remember what shalom is. It's a word we talk about a lot here at Embrace, but it's more than a word. It's a picture. It's something I want us to be able to hold on to. So shalom is a godly peace. It's not just an absence of conflict, but a fullness of life and wholeness and thriving It's enoughness for all people and the ability to live at peace and in communion with one another and God. Shalom is life and life to the full for all people. So when these prophets are saying this shalom exists in Israel and it really doesn't, what's happening is that the people in power with a voice are proclaiming lies to cover up what's really going on. We read all throughout the prophets that God is judging Israel for their treatment of the poor. There might be some people who are living a good life in Israel, but a lot of them are not. That is not a picture of shalom. And so God is holding accountable those who have said this peace is there when it is not. And I want us to notice what these storms of judgment tell us. They tell us how incredibly important true shalom is, actual shalom, to God and to his vision for his people. So we've already established that God wants a good, full, thriving life for all of us. But it's more than that. God wants that thriving and that fullness and that everyone has enoughness for all people, for all of creation, in fact. So when we put the insights of the Ezekiel passage next to the passage from the Sermon on the Mount, which is another hermeneutical principle, scripture interprets scripture, then we actually have an insight not just about construction and and how to build things, but an insight about what the purpose is behind Jesus telling us to hear and obey. Hear and put his words into practice. Simply, it's because only the house or the life built on Jesus constructs true shalom. Foolish, lying, and deceived people might believe that they're building the good life, But built on anything other than Jesus and his way, it's not the best life, which is shalom for all people. 
Do you see it? All these challenging words in the Sermon on the Mount, do you see what Jesus is doing? He's telling us what it looks like practically. How many of us are always like, give me something practical? He's telling us the practical pieces of working for and living inside shalom with one another. Let's go back to the studies that we've already done, the passages we've already looked at, and see if we can see them with a shalom-shaped lens. The first week, John preached a passage where Jesus radicalized a command about murder to show us that the heart of it was about treating people rightly, not doing anything that would deny their human worth and dignity. And the transforming initiative that week was to seek reconciliation. And those reconciled relationships would then point towards the communion that God intends for us at the heart of this picture of shalom. The second week, John looked at a passage that challenged those who were experiencing persecution to use active, nonviolent resistance to evil. The people who were seemingly without power were charged to take the transforming initiatives of asserting their own human dignity. Again, we see that concern for human dignity and that protection of people. And we see that, it, really, those transforming initiatives are a protest. They're um, a statement that says the shalom of God transcends even human power abuse. The third week, John preached on the passage that invited us to do good works in secret. And we talked about how the heart of that was really about the condition of our hearts. Are we getting our worth and our value from God, or are we seeking affirmation other places? See, part of the picture of shalom is accepting our own worth, that we're made in the image of God, that he restores us and renews us and transforms us. Part of that enoughness is not just knowing that God gives us enough, but that he's made us enough. So the three passages we've studied together are able to show us a glimpse of shalom, but they're just a sampling of the different teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus also brings up other topics, including the Beatitudes, and for those of you who know these, these are all about the fortunes and the experiences of the poor and the dispossessed being reversed. It's all about their inheritance in the kingdom of God and a picture of the shalom that God intends. There's also teaching on adultery and divorce and love for enemies. And all of that points to the radical justice and mercy and right treatment of the other that is central to the picture of shalom. There's also commands not to worry because of the sufficiency and the enoughness available in God. And this is the teaching that if we would keep it in mind every single day, we would learn not to worry. We would learn to live in the shalom that God provides for us. So over and over again throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we realize that the words Jesus says point out what stands in the way of shalom and transforms our ability to experience shalom if we will just Put them into practice. Why? Why is it so important that we hear and put into practice? Because building our lives by following the way of Jesus is how shalom breaks into the world. Starting in our lives and the lives that touch ours and rippling out from there. This is a beautiful vision that Jesus is casting in the Sermon on the Mount. Though sometimes following him feels really costly, what he is inviting us into is so much richer than we have imagined. It's so much more expansive. It's so much deeper and more beautiful. That shalom for all people. It transforms not only our own lives, but our whole communities when we hear and we put into practice. 
I want to make just one last observation about the metaphor that Jesus develops in this close of the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about the foundation of the wise man's house and the foolish man's house. So the wise man builds on rock, and the foolish man builds on sand. Did you guys know that sand is just a bunch of really tiny rock particles? I've told you before I'm not a science person, so I googled this. I think it's still true. <laughs> Maybe check with Chuck if it's not. Um, but I think it's possible that over time, with enough erosion, a rock can be broken down into sand. And so what that says to me is that if we try to break down these very challenging teachings of Jesus to maybe pick just what's most palatable to us, we end up compromising the integrity of our foundation. Jesus isn't calling us just to listen to some of his words and put them into practice. He's calling us to build our whole lives on everything he has said. And I know, keeping in mind and living out all of the transforming initiatives Jesus has offered in this sermon sounds nothing short of overwhelming, if we're honest. But again, it's about the heart of the matter, right? And this morning, we've seen that the heart of the matter is shalom. And so I think we can ask ourselves just a couple of questions to really help us live into the whole teaching of Jesus and build our lives on that. Does the choice I am making contribute to or inhibit my ability or another's ability to experience God's shalom? What is the action or choice that allows shalom to break in? I think as we sit with those questions this morning, if we learn to ask ourselves those questions on a regular basis, as we interact with people, as we face hard decisions, I think maybe we'll take a little bit of growth, and I think we will be able to build that house at one brick at a time and find that it is on a solid foundation. And though today's passage does not mention the Holy Spirit, I have to wind up there. I would be doing us a disservice if I did not mention that this hearing and putting into practice all the words of Jesus is empowered for us by the very Spirit of Jesus himself. See, we don't just build our lives on Jesus. We build our lives with Jesus. That means the Spirit helps us to discern, helps us to answer that question. What choice or action allows shalom to break in? And then the Spirit gives us the power, actual power, to make that choice or take that action. So though we began today by noting the challenge and the cost of putting into practice all these words of Jesus, we've discovered that there is a purpose that leads to a powerful kind of life for all of us. The call of Jesus is still challenging, but it's the way of God's shalom breaking into the world. And all the power that we need to walk this way is already ours by the Spirit of Christ Jesus who dwells in us. So there's purpose and there's power in what Jesus has commanded us to do here at the close of the Sermon on the Mount. So let us hear and obey and take heart. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.